Welcome to the Consulting Pipeline Podcast. So today I've got another great moving the needle conversation to share with you. I spoke with my friend Jonathan Stark last week about how he moves the needle for software developers. In particular, how he applies his expertise around pricing to help the, his, his clients get better results in their business. And as you listen to this interview, I hope you'll notice something that's going on. I've talked about this before, and it seems to be a, a sort of common theme with these moving the needle interviews. There is a primary expertise that, in this case, Jonathan applies to move the needle for his clients. And then there's a secondary complementary expertise that he also brings into the mix and it is starting to seem to me like maybe this isn't absolutely necessary in every single case, but it certainly seems to be a a common theme with, with people who've specialized in some way. They start to develop some kind of, of sort of secondary expertise that's complementary to their primary expertise. And it seems to be the combination of those two that helps them get exceptionally valuable results happening for their clients. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jonathan Stark. Jonathan Stark, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So for the three people out there who don't know who you are and what you do, (laughs) who are and what do you do? Uh, I'm a former software developer who is now a business coach, and I help, specifically help software developers increase their profitability. So how to make more while working less. And in fact, having a bigger impact on their clients. So yeah, we can go in a million directions from there, but that's the crux of it. It's, it sounds almost too dumb to ask, but how do you specialize in software developers, Mr. X software developer? Right. It's, it's really because that's the psychology that I understand. Mm. So it's very easy for me to understand their language. When I work with a new student, they tell me about their business and I can almost tell them what their business is like and what they do and what their clients are like, you know, cause I've, I've been doing it since, I don't know, 2001 or something. So coming up on 20 years. So, you know, I get the space. I understand the motivations. I understand the nuances of running a software project, the likelihood that it's going to go wrong, how to tell when it's going to go wrong, red flags with new prospects. I've just been there for so long um, that it gives me ESP basically into what they're thinking, which allows me to be more effective. And, and I think in fact gives them more, like it's easier for me to turn on light bulbs in their heads. Mm -hmm. So I can just be like, you ever have a situation like this happen? And they're like, yeah, all the time. And I'm like, and it makes you feel like this. And they're like, yes. (laughs) You know, so it gives me, it gives me ESP. And I have, I, I have other experiences where, you know, the, the, the concepts that I teach are broadly applicable to anybody who is in professional services. Right. So they're usually people who go by the hour and could be lawyers or copywriters or designers or photographers, anybody that's basically trading time for money to do some sort of profession can benefit to some extent from pretty much everything I teach. Pretty much. I I stay away from highly technical code type things. Right. 
but it is, it's harder. I'm branching into that though. I have, I have a copywriter student. I have a photographer student. I have a, a lawyer, a small law firm that I'm talking to and figuring out how to adapt the ideas that I've been presenting to software developers in a way that is going to make sense with, with them and their world and their language and their kinds of clients and their kinds of projects and the risks that those have. But it's very different. It's hard. It's definitely different. Yeah. It, it's, it's an investment. Like I can say this because I also primarily work with software developers, but I've had clients from outside that, that narrow world. And I always feel like I'm working a little extra hard, which I don't mind doing, but it feels like a, like a translation on the fly. Do you feel that? I mean, is that kind of how it is for you? Absolutely. It makes me feel stupider. So, (laughs) you know, it, it takes me longer to get it, uh-huh. you know, when they're describing what like, people can tell me what they do. And they're usually pretty good at that, you know, describing the activities that they engage in. Like I open up Photoshop and I do this, or I load up my camera gear and I go to a wedding. Like mm-hmm. I get that. It's a very physical world. It's very easy to understand. The thing that's tougher to understand is what probably is the value proposition that they are presenting to their clients or what is the value proposition that their clients will most likely perceive from someone who engages in those activities. Right. And I don't have a crystal ball for that the way I do with software developers. Cause I get software developer clients. Right. So it's abstracted. It's, it's a, a lot more difficult. It feels like it takes me longer to get up to, I know it takes me longer to get up to speed and it makes the process feel a little bit more, to me, it feels a little gunky, mm-hmm. you know, it feels, I feel like, um, you know, like, like you said, like I'm trying to do a translation on the fly and it's slowing me down and I don't feel as nimble and as, I don't feel as smart. Yeah. And you know, the, the student I'm working with doesn't have anything to compare it to because they're not a software developer and they probably never worked with a business coach before either, but it makes me feel like I'm delivering less value and it makes me want to do things like, Oh, I'm going to give you an extra month because it took me longer to get up to speed and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's on the job learning. Mm, yes. So when, when your services move the needle for like any client, but particularly one that's really in your sweet spot, what does that look like? Basically I'm, I'm giving you permission to brag as much as you want about you know, mm-hmm. the, the sort of what it was it look like when it works, what changes in their world? The, the core, the central theme, like the moment when it worked is when they land a deal that is dramatically higher for a dramatically higher price than they would have ever asked for in uh-huh. the past. And lots of things need to be in place for that to happen in most cases. So we might need to fix their positioning. We might need to fix the way that they're marketing. We might need to fix who they're marketing to. We need to fix the channels through which they're marketing. And that's just marketing. If we go into the sales phase, we're going to change the way that they uh, attract. Well, I guess it's marketing. We're going to change the way that they run a sales meeting. This is very hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to change the way they approach the whole thing. We're going to change the way they talk to the client. We're going to change the kind of questions they ask for. They're going to stop. They're going to need to stop worrying about the things they currently worry about in a sales meeting. Uh, where they're going to need to learn how to write a proposal with options and, and benefits focused, not features focused or scope focused. Uh, they're going to need to learn how to present the proposal and negotiate the price, close the deal, manage the project and so on and so forth. Um, there could be aspects of it that involve 
lending speaking gigs, guest, guesting on podcasts, starting a podcast, doing webinars. There's a million tactical things that come out of it, but there's this sort of, you know, the very beginning, it's like, okay, what do you do for your clients? Not, not I'm a software developer. What is the, what is the outcome that you deliver to your clients? Who are your ideal clients? All of that big picture stuff. If it's not in place, it almost certainly needs to be for them mm-hmm. to be able to enter into that sales meeting and be able to present a client with probably the highest price the client is going to get of any option. So the most premium option and still have the client say, yes, you're the one we want to work with. Where do we send the check? And the moment that happens, the student is like, wow, this works. Yeah. Right. I, I also, you know, work with people on changes that don't happen overnight. And so I'm curious, I'm sort of hoping the folks at home, if, if they have a similar sort of thing that they do where it's just not an immediate change that manifests in their client's world. So it's not like this instant gratification thing, but it takes longer. How do you help your, your customers or clients have the patience to, to get there to that sort of promised land? Mm -hmm. With some, it's easier than others because some come to me with a very, very clear value proposition and target market and, and, or even if it's not a target market, because not everybody is focused on a vertical, Sure, but some people just come along, they have a much more mature business and a very clear value proposition that goes direct to the bottom line. It's very easy to sell that kind of thing. Right. So if the bottom line changes that they can promise are enormous, then I, I can almost immediately raise their prices and, and help them negotiate high fees. So, but that is definitely the exception to the rule. Most people are kind of like, you know, you ask them what they do and 15 minutes later, they're still like trying to you know, they're giving you this sort of exposition of all the things that they do all day. And, mm. you know, that's the way I used to be. People are like, Oh, what do you do? Oh, well, I kind of do this. And then sometimes <laughs> I, you know, yeah. And so it, it, the average, I would say the average is it takes about six months for someone to start to get noticeable, meaningful tra- traction with some sort of leading indicator. So, an example, a recent example would be, you know, three or four months into a, a mentoring engagement with a student of mine who does training, you know, we changed the way his sales funnel really changed the way that the first, how he self-identified, we changed the way he thought about his business first. Mm -hmm. And then we updated the marketing copy on his email opt-in form and the, and the way that he wrote the messages that went out to his list. And, you know, he, he sent me a Slack message. It was like, I got more signups in the last week than I have in the last three years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he, he was getting traffic to these YouTube videos and he's getting traffic to his site. And then we just sort of said, okay, let's focus down. What is the core of what your value proposition is? Okay. Let's bake that into an email series that is presented to people in this way. And it immediately worked. So it, it, it took a couple of weeks to get all that done, mm-hmm. maybe more than that, maybe a month or so to get all that done and implemented and to start to get results back. But it's, it's pretty satisfying, even though it's not like, oh, wow, I'm rich right. all of a sudden. It's like, oh, the needle is moving. What, can you believe it? I've been feeling stuck for like three years. I haven't been able to move any needle at all. I'm not even sure which ones I'm looking at. And now this one that we focused on is moving in the positive direction. And that's amazing. And 
you know, if this is all in the context of a strategy, we know if we move this needle or we're confident if we move this needle, that's going to lead to this next needle moving and then this next one. And then, okay, now the prices are actually going up. Now the income's actually going up. Yeah. So it's small wins, basically. Small wins. Nice. So your ability to help create these results, it's not something you do for your clients, but you're still a key part of these results happening. How did specialization play into you being able to do that? Or did it? Maybe it didn't. Uh, it definitely does. So it's back to the ESP thing where, where I need to present my knowledge to them in a way that is going to inspire action. Because like you said, they have to do it. It's, there are a couple of, there are very few things that I do on anybody's behalf. I'm not going to, I don't write a sales page for them. I might say, here's a template, here's how you write it, fill this in, and then I'll critique it, but I'm not going to write it. Mm-hmm. So they still have to do a lot of things. And we, you know, and, and I keep them accountable. Every two weeks we have a, a phone call, accountability call, where we sort of go over the things they're supposed to do. Did you do them? Didn't you do them? How far did you get? Okay, here are the next ones for the next call. And it just sort of keep them moving forward and having specialized on people like me, just gives me an ability to understand the, the, where I'm going to get pushback and how to diffuse it. And the, and not just, you know, over time having specialized on software developers, I've found a couple different kinds, maybe three or four different kinds are really, really, uh, two different scales that can combine in four different ways or, or mm-hmm. however the math works out sure. where some people need to, some people need to know the entire map in detail before they'll even start the car. Right. Other people will are the polar opposite where I'll make a suggestion. They'll immediately run with it, do it, implement it. And then two days later, undo it and do something else. Hmm. So you've got the one person who won't start the car until they know exactly everything about the route, where they're going to end up, what it's going to look like, how the weather's going to be on the way. And then other people are just sort of thrashing, trying every tactic under the sun repeatedly, you know, back to back. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm somewhere in the middle of those, but having worked with, with others, it's, it's a noticeable thing. And I think, I don't think I would have recognized that as clearly if I were working with uh, lots of different kinds of professions, because it seems to me, and this is, this is a pretty broad brush, but it seems to me that software development attracts a particular personality type. It, it certainly can. And I think that that's probably a very different personality type than a copywriter or a lawyer or a photographer. And obviously there's overlap and everybody's you know got all sorts of qualities, but it, it does seem to be true that different kinds of professions attract different kinds of people and you have a tendency and it gives me superpower of being able to kind of reach into their brain and under, it, it makes me more empathetic. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. It's easier for me to be empathetic with a software developer. With, with my new clients now, I um, ask them to take a personality profile and I can confirm what you just said. I don't have a ton of data yet about that, mm-hmm. but there's two main personality types that show up about, I'm going to say, roughly 80% of the time. So um, 
yeah, it's <laughs> like mm. there's I think there's there would be some evidence to support that if you could survey, let's say, a thousand software developers. I think you'd see a lot of consistency in their in their personality mm-hmm. types. So um, there you're not the only business coach out there. <laughs> right. If we look at how you would work with someone, you know, coming from the specialist background Compared to, let's say, just someone is a generalist business coach. You're self-employed. You got a business. I'll I'll coach you. What kind of things are you? I think we've covered part of this question already. The question is, what kind of things are you going to know that they don't know on day one of working with a software developer? And I think maybe you gave already gave the biggest part of that answer. But is there other stuff that? They would have to find out the hard way because they're coming from this generalist position. Yeah, I think so. The some things that come to mind immediately are just not understanding scope creep in a, in a software project, like not understanding the specter of scope creep, and not being able to like look somebody in the eye, even if it's over video, and and be like, "Dude, I get you." Like yeah. that is the worst. Right. Um, I mean, I think anybody who's running a business understands things like pushy clients or, you know, clients from hell or, or things like, you know, general business stuff like uh, taxes or whatever. But knowing the nuances of, of the inner, like the inner struggle of things like things like scope creep, um, or some other things, sort of shiny object syndrome that seems epidemic with software developers, just always wanting to change tools with, even with no, even if there's no obvious really benefit, Mm -hmm. you you know, just staying on the bleeding edge at all times, Uh, understanding their language in general, they have it. Software developers are pretty, pretty rough in the jargon department. Yeah. And being able to just have them describe a client engagement to you and you even begin to understand it would be, I think, really hard. I, I feel like it would be really hard to create a bond, the kind of bond you need to inspire them to actually take some kind of action on their business. Because as you know, you get lots and lots of fear and resistance when certain ones of these, certain kinds of these changes need to be made. It's, it takes a lot of soul searching and they really need to trust you that you've got their best interests at heart, that you know what you're doing and that this is that they can make a leap of faith based on your encouragement. Mm -hmm. So I would say good luck with that general generalist business coaches. (laughs) Fun learning on the job. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, I'm assuming that there's, there are these uh, periodic eyebrow raising moments with, yeah, with the people you work with, I mean, their eyebrows more so than yours, where something you say just is like, uh, you know, kind of opens some veil for them and they, they understand things. They just have a sort of a flash of insight. Um, mm-hmm. d- does that happen? I assume it does, but does it? Yeah, that's what keeps me going. Yeah, it happens all the time. What, um, what does that look like? Uh, it usually happens on my mailing list. So, uh-huh. uh, you know, I, I mail, I, I, my mailing list uh, you know, it's a few thousand people. I think I'm pushing 5,000 now and I've got a, mostly software developers, but it is a mix. I have a, a mix of freelance professions, consulting professions. And it's where I explore ideas. So when I'm, you know, I've, I've been doing it since, I don't know, 
I've sent out about 500 so far. So it's like two years almost, mm-hmm. maybe more. And pretty quickly within a month, you pretty much get past all the surface level stuff and you have to start drilling deeper and you get better and better at, at expressing your knowledge in a way that is going to click mm-hmm. with different kinds of people. And Every so often, maybe once a month or two months, I'll hit a home run with a big segment of the list and I'll just get a million replies, mm-hmm. you know, where everybody is like, whoa, this just changed my life. Uh, this is mind blowing. You know, you just get your inbox just fills up with that kind of reaction. Most of the time, what happens is I get more localized ones where I will tell a new story about an old thing and suddenly it makes sense to someone just because the way I happen to phrase it this time around. So I, you know, it's, it's part, it goes with the job that you have to repeat yourself endlessly. You know, I feel like I'm saying the same thing over and over and over again, but I'm using different words and different language and different stories. And some, you know, I've got a a worldwide audience, so I'll, I'll use examples from other countries and I have to take into consideration, you know, people will say like, Oh, you know, that's all great for you. You're in the U S but in my culture, things are different and I'll explore that. Um, but, but to get back to your question, a recent, a recent big light bulb moment for the whole list was I sent out an email that said, um, you know, you probably dear reader, you probably charge less for the fun stuff or things you find easy. Right. Uh, you probably throw that in for free cause you enjoy doing it. But guess what? If you don't charge for that stuff, that means you're, you're sentencing yourself to a life of doing work that's not fun that you're not good at. So you have to charge more for the fun stuff because that is the thing that is going to lead you to this this sort of high profit engagements where your costs, whether they are time or stress or emotion, those all go down. Those try, you want those to approach zero and you want the benefit to your clients to approach infinity, right? And then you can set a price anywhere in that giant margin in the middle, and they'll be happy to keep on hiring you forever and ever. Amen. And it was just one of those things where people are like, oh man, I totally don't charge for the fun stuff. And wow, no wonder I hate my job (laughs) because I leave, I only charge for the stuff I don't like. It's just one of those things that is obvious once you see it. And yeah, I got, you know, I probably had 50 replies to that email. It was like, people are like, oh man, this just messed with me. It's it's so funny how easily we can see how incentives like that affect other people, but applying it to ourselves is not nearly as easy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you're doing is saying, hey, these incentives work for you, you too. I mean, why wouldn't they, right? Yeah, I, I try to put people, a lot of people who are uh, freelancing or doing consulting, especially if they're soloists, a lot of them don't have bu- business or don't have experience selling anything, you know, like maybe they had a paper, but you know, that a lot of them were the bulk of their experiences from some full-time job. And, uh, and then eventually they went out on their own for some reason and they never got comfortable with selling anything or pricing or any of that. So they don't really, they don't, they're not really thinking about things like a business and I've lost track of the original question though. Can you loop me back? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was about eyebrow raising moments. 
Okay. Was where we originally got into this. Uh, and we don't have to loop back to that. It's like what you're saying is is so relevant. Um, oh, so I, yeah, my, the train came back. Yeah. What I, what I was going to say is is people don't have a lot of experience selling stuff, but they have tons of experience buying stuff. Right. So that's what you were. That's how you you triggered me. I, you, you, what I'll do is I'll have people think about well, when you go out to you know get a contractor to work on your house or look for a landscaper or decide which coffee place to stop at. How do you decide which one? What are the things you consider? And like a lot of it's subconscious. So if you really think about it, you can feel, if you pay a lot of attention to it, you can see how complicated your buying decisions are. And then hopefully to to get an eyebrow raising moment for them to turn it around and be like, okay, now pretend your, your client is just like you when they're trying to make a buying decision. You know, what things do you hate when you go to buy something? For example, I'm sure you hate not knowing how much something's going to cost before you decide to buy it, like uh, putting an addition on your house. Well, it'll probably be $20,000. Well, I'd kind of like to know that before you start. Could you give me a firmer <laughs> estimate? Right. You know, and then we expect our clients to accept the same kind of very scary, risky proposition. It's, it's, that's, that's a good way to help people with pricing things and marketing is just like, look, look around. You're a consumer. You, you buy tons of stuff. And what sorts of things do you gravitate to? Why do you gravitate to them? What things turn you off? And then and now try and put yourself in your customer's shoes. Just be empathetic to their situation. So let's um, wrap up by exploring this thing that I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, the folks at home know that I, I totally have an agenda on this podcast. <laughs> you know, part of it is to help uh, self-employed software developers get better at marketing. But really, I'm hoping that, you know, a, a really large percentage can move from building things for clients to getting paid to help them make better decisions, which, you know, fits under that strategy advisory work umbrella. Mm-hmm. And I hope that the people who have been listening to you talk, Jonathan, are hearing something different in how you talk than when they listen to someone who primarily builds things for clients, it's a whole different ball game when the value that you create is, um, is made by helping people make better decisions or helping them see the world differently in your case. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm curious if we could, if you could kind of just reflect on that idea, cause you're, I think you're trying to do a sort of a similar thing too. Maybe it looks a little different, but you're still trying to help people move into kind of build a different kind of business where the value that they're created, where the value they create is just made in a fundamentally different way. I know I'm not giving you much to go on there, but no, no, I think I know what you mean. There's a couple of things there actually. So the, the one thing with, with software developers specifically, a lot of them, I would say it's the vast majority of them think that what they do that's of value is code. They write code for clients and that's valuable, Mm -hmm. but that's not how clients see it. Clients, clients don't need, you know, nobody comes to you and says, Hey, I need 2000 lines of JavaScript by Friday. (laughs) Right. You know, they need, that's not my joke. I don't, I don't remember whose joke it is, but I love it. (laughs) Um, And they want the thing that they believe they want the business impact that they think that code is going to have. And it's tough. So there, so 
people who are used to who, who essentially their identity is I'm a coder have a hard time making a shift to higher value work because they're, they're, I call it the, the altitude of their engagement is stuck in the middle. So I, I define three different altitudes of engagement for a software developer and a client relationship. You've got the bottom level, which is support and maintenance. And a lot of software developers look at that as like, oh, that would be good recurring income. It's easy mm-hmm. to tell a story about, about how support and maintenance needs to be this ongoing thing. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it's a, it, it, clients are not uh, unfamiliar with the concept. Uh, but it's a low value thing. And, and you know, it's a low value thing because there's a lot of price sensitivity and you're dealing with people who are very low in the organization, you know, hierarchically like customer service people or front frontline people. You're not dealing with CEOs or, you know, executives of any kind at that point. And it's, it's a, it's a tough job. I think it's a, a relatively thankless job. You're basically being paid to maintain the status quo. Mm-hmm. Now there's a level up from here, which I call an implementation layer. And the things that you do here are build stuff. You build stuff. Somebody gives you essentially a a blueprint or a spec and you build it. So somebody, it's essentially your responsibility to build a new status quo, which will then get handed off either to you or somebody else to maintain after it's built. But you're in that phase in between the bottom phase and the top phase where you are creating the new status quo in accordance with someone else's plan. And then the top level is a strategic level where you are helping the client or perhaps defining for the client what the new status quo is going to be. So you're conceptualizing, you're designing, you're planning, you're architecting. And that you can tell that's the high value work because who's in the room with you? The founder, the CEO, the president, the board of directors. You're operating at the strategic level that is going to have just massive downstream effects for years potentially on the people who are doing implementation and the people who are doing maintenance. So if you imagine it like a a building metaphor, you know, you've got the architect who's doing the highest value work. In other words, the profit margins are the highest there. Mm -hmm. Then you've got the builder who's going to actually, you know, clear the land, bring in the backhoes, frame the walls, da, 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 build the building. And they probably, of the, of the three, they probably make the most money from a, a raw revenue standpoint, but their costs are astronomical. Hmm. So their profit margins are usually not that big. It's great cash flow, but it's really not that profitable compared to strategic level. Right. And then the maintenance level is the janitors who come in and keep the building clean after the fact. So, you know, that's an hourly rate wage. That is a, a low hourly wage. In fact, uh, it's, it's relatively commoditized. It's very interchangeable. It's tough to differentiate between, oh, no, I'm a better janitor than that guy. Uh, it's, it's, it's tricky unless your entire business is around uh, optimizing janitorial work and having a, a great reputation as, uh, as for, for something. Uh, it's hard to just sort of casually take on that low level of work. So... Long, uh, I know we're trying to wrap up, <laughs> sorry to go on a soapbox, but most software developers operate in the middle level with smatterings of the bottom level. Right. And if they do anything at the top level, the strategic level, they usually give it away for free or they're charging for it by the hour at the beginning of a project. So what I want them to do 
is I want them to increase their altitude. So try to get more of that strategic work, certainly start charging for it, but try to get more of it and, and sell it as a discrete offering, not as part of, you know, not as some foot in the door to get the bigger project, but as something that could become your entire business. And that's the, the long winded answer to your question, which is that they can start to freak out not wanting to move up to that level because I won't be in my text editor all day anymore. You know, I won't be coding anymore. So there's a, there's a little bit of, you know, I have to push them out of their comfort zone a little bit. They'll still use their expertise. They might oversee the project team and they might even both do the strategy and build the thing, but it is definitely pushing them out of their comfort zone to go up the organization, increase the altitude and do advisory work instead of, you know, brains work instead of hands work, basically. Yeah. You know, I've, I've done a number of these sort of moving the needle interviews for this podcast. And what I notice is that in every single one, I, I'm not always talking, by the way, with people who do just strategy work or just, um, you know, that high level advisory work. But mm-hmm. never, I am talking with people who specialized in a vertical long enough that they can move the needle for their clients. And in every case... If there's always some part of the interview I could excerpt, and if I wanted to play a joke on somebody, I could play it for them and, and say, you're listening to uh, an excerpt of an interview I did with, in your case, Jonathan, I would say um, uh, a therapist or a psychologist. <laughs> and then not the whole thing. I'm just talking about certain parts where, you know, and someone would be like, oh, okay, sure, yeah. They wouldn't find anything to disagree with in that assessment of the subject matter and the reason – and I'm sort of developing this theory that that is part of making that transition is you have to acquire a complementary skill set that might be pretty people-focused. In other cases, I could do that excerpt thing, and I I think I could convince somebody they were listening to a management consultant Mm -hmm. talk about, you know, something – so right. I don't know. I, I, I'm starting to develop this theory that, that you do have to acquire some kind of complementary skill set to really make that transition effectively, or you'll just pick it up along the way. Maybe it's not that you have to go out and, you know, do it before you can start doing advisory work, but I think it, I think it does change us a little bit to do that. And I think that change, it feels threatening at first or it can. Yeah. It's like not the identity that you think you've right. carved out for yourself. Right. And it, I mean, the, the thing it came, you're right. I mean, I've certainly seen that in myself and the, the place it came from was I was doing consulting work and giving people advice that they would agree with, but then not never act on. Hmm. And that was very frustrating professionally where I'd go in and paid a lot of money and say, we should do this. We should do that. And they'd be like, yes, you're right. That's a great idea. Three years later, not, no change. And it, it's frustrating. I mean, for many reasons, yeah. um, but eventually you get sick of that and you're like, okay, I need to be more persuasive somehow, or I need to say this in some other way, or I need to understand them better, or I need to, if I really want to improve their condition, they need to act on this advice. So uh, by hook or by crook and through experimentation, you know, I've I've tried a million things and some things work better than others. And uh, certainly having more facts is not one of the things that works, (laughs) you know? You can tell people all day long that smoking is bad for them. That's not going to change anything. Right. And it's all about 
you know, what is the, what's the CD? Derek Seavers says, uh, you know, if people just, everybody knows how to have washboard abs and be a billionaire, but nobody does it. Right. Or very few people do it because nobody wants to. So how do you get them to? And, and it's, I mean, I'm sure all sorts of advisors have this coaches, advisors, uh, consultants, everybody's got the same problem. How do I, how do I, how do I encourage my clients to take action for real? actually make a change because change is scary. You know, it's not, it's associated with risk, which is associated with death as Seth Godin says. So people don't want to make changes. Well, on that um, one optimistic note, how can folks <laughs> get your help making changes? How could they reach out to you or find out more? Again, they were just speaking to the three people in the audience here who don't already exactly. know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, sure. The best place to best place to get in touch with me and have a conversation is on my email list. So if you can go to valuepricingbootcamp.com and you'll get a, a quick introductory series on value pricing, which uh, is a, a big plank in my platform. And then, you know, we can just, you just reply to any email, go straight to my personal inbox. Thanks for being here, Jonathan. Really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been a while. <laughs>